Uh, I started to learn how to play chess a few years back. And then I, I fell in love with it, and I probably play more than I should now. Um, Micken would say I should play more. She just keeps telling me, Carl, play more chess. Just play more chess. Take more. That was a joke. That was a joke. Um, if, if you're a brand new beginner or if you're the most advanced master, it doesn't matter. Chess is broken up into three parts. Every chess game has three parts. Part number one, uh, it's called the opening. You're literally just beginning to move the pieces onto the board, to organize them, to get them into play. Once all of your pieces are in play, you enter stage two. It's called the middle game. Uh, the greatest amount of strategy and tactics and, and just very complicated, sophisticated reasoning happens in the middle game. Many games of chess are actually won or lost in the middle game because you've got to keep up with what your opponent's doing. But if neither player can win in the middle game, uh, you make it to the third and final part called the end game. Almost all the pieces have been traded off the board. While there's still strategy and tactics, they look very different in the end game than they do in the middle or the opening. Turns out uh, many people have observed that life, for each of us, can similarly be broken into three parts. There's the opening, the mid-game, and the end game. There's, there's our youth when we're figuring out who we are, what we love, care about, what we're good about, or good at, what, what our lives are about. There's the middle game. We might call it adulthood. I've been thinking about starting the middle game in my life. <laughs> I don't know if I'm quite ready, but I'm thinking about it. And then, of course, there's the end game what many have called the third third of life. And we're starting a sermon series this morning, um, starting today, four weeks, in which we're going to talk about what does it look like, what does it mean, what, what can we do so that when we get to that third third of life, we might finish well. In the game of chess, it turns out you can be really, really good at the opening and the middle game and not actually know anything about the end game. And even though you've played well for all that came before it, you can lose it just because you weren't ready for what was unique and different about that last part. And so it is with us. Um, I, David and I were trying to figure out, like, how do we, what kind of an image do we want to put on the Finishing Well sermon series? Do we want, like, the peaceful sunset on the beach? You know, something very serene. We said, nah, 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 none of that. Here's the thing. Here's what I know about life. If you're in the beginning of life, if you're a teen, if you're a young 20-something, if you're in the middle, if you're at the end of life, life is a bit crazy. We live in a world, we, we face choices, decisions, circumstances that can, that can feel a little more like we're out of control. The nice thing about a game of chess, 64 squares, very defined and neat and clean, and life is a little more messy than that. So I want to introduce you to the title slide for this sermon series, Finishing Well. <laughs> Sometimes if I'm just ricocheting off the curbs, I need something to help me stay focused, stay rooted as my life goes through each of its challenging phases. And here's the scripture that we're going to focus on this morning. And here's what I'm going to suggest um, 
I mean, I think all the words of Jesus are good for us to learn how to finish well, but what we're going to spend four weeks considering is a teaching from Jesus that I think is critical and central for every single one of us, no matter our stage of life, to learn how to finish well. Uh, It comes from his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, right in the middle of the sermon, Jesus says these words. He says, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Now you might be thinking to yourself, okay, Carl, finishing well. I know that I will come to the third third of life at some point, but, but Carl, I'm not there yet. So do I get to like zone out? Do I get to just ignore this? Can I check out? I mean, if that's true, then I myself can check out of this whole sermon series. Maybe I'm checked out right now, right? No, that's not what we do. Here's, here's the, the idea I want to present, and I'm going to hopefully try to unfold it in a few ways. Um, here's one thing we know to be true, and it's actually true in many different areas of life. If we want to finish, if when we get to the end, we want the end to go well, there's one thing that's true no matter what stage of life we're in. You always finish well by starting now. You make sure the end goes well by getting, giving yourself the longest runway necessary so that when the end comes, it's not a surprise. Um, as I don't have any personal experience with finishing well, I haven't had the chance to try it yet. Um, I'm going to rely heavily and other preachers who will preach in this series are going to rely heavily on some stories from other people. And I was really captured um, because of a a book that was recommended to me and I bought and I was reminded of the life of this man that I'll share about. I was really captured by the life uh, of John Perkins. Um, I first heard about John through a a friend and mentor of mine who uh, went to work for him in Mississippi for one of his organization's down there. Uh, I just started reading his 16th book called One Blood, which he wrote at the sprightly young age of 87. He intended it to be his last book, but then he wrote another one the next year. I want to tell you about John Perkins. Uh, Born in Mississippi into a sharecropping family, his mother died at a young age of illness, lack of access to any sort of quality medical um, treatment. His father was absent pretty much his whole life, so he was raised by his grandparents on a sharecropping farm. At that time and in that place for his family, that sharecropping experience, though his family technically had some ownership, uh, it looked quite a bit like slavery. And he has a lot of pretty brutal memories. And unfortunately for him, those memories only got worse as he saw Um, acts of hatred and violence enacted against him personally, beaten at the hands of police officers when he went to post bail for two friends who had been jailed for um, civil rights activism. His brother uh, murdered not long after coming home from fighting in World War II. And this violence that he suffered was so great that he um, confesses his heart was taken over by hatred. He, um, the struggle of his life uh, uh, caused him to drop out of school in third grade to 
not receive much in terms of education or support or, or um, growth. And at around the age of 27, he acknowledges this hatred was pretty much taking over. The hatred he was receiving, the violence he was receiving, that was more or less the path that his life was going to go, except it was at the age of 27 that he then encountered the good news of Christ and the love of God. Here's how he describes it. I had learned to hate the white people in Mississippi. And if I had not met Jesus, I would have died carrying that heavy burden of hate to my grave. But he began to strip it away layer by layer. Perkins often would quote Nelson Mandela, who famously said, um, hatred is like drinking a poison and hoping it'll kill your enemy. Even though he dropped out of school somewhere third to fifth grade, he would go on to live such a productive life to receive from God hope and strength and vision. Uh, He would found numerous organizations, including the Christian Community Development Association, which continues to do great work today, and a couple people in our church are pretty closely associated with. Um, He would author 17 books. He would be given 16 honorary doctorates from universities around the U.S. I think John Perkins is a man whose life testifies what it looks like to finish well. One interviewer uh, was talking to him and said, at the age of 87, John Perkins is ready to start his eighth career. With his book, One Blood, he declared, I'm going to devote the last season of my life to teaching the church about biblical reconciliation. But Perkins says that none of that would have happened if at the age of 27, he hadn't met Christ, heard the voice of God, listened to the voice of God, confessed and repented and turned the direction of his life. The reason John Perkins' life finished as well as its finishing is because of what happened early on. And so for all of us, if we're going to finish well, here's my invitation to you. God wants you to start right now with the critical work because God has got some things for each of us in every one of our lives. And the only way we get what God is, has put in us and has for us is by opening our eyes and opening our ears and beginning today. So, We're going to do that by reading the words of Jesus, because I think that is the best way to go about it. If you want to go there, Matthew chapter 6, like I said, this is the Sermon on the Mount, the largest block of teaching Jesus ever gave. There's either another version of the same sermon or maybe a different sermon he preached that was similar. Uh, You can find it in Luke, Uh, but we're in Matthew right now. The sermon is chapters 5 through 7, but we're in chapter 6, starting in verse 25. Listen now to the words of Jesus. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body, more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. 
are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? I could probably just stop right there with that question and just be like, all right, go and think about that for the next few days, all right? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? I've tried really hard. Hasn't worked for me yet. Let me know if it does. He continues. And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. I want to consider three things um, from this passage. First of all, the context. It's called the Sermon on the Mount because Jesus delivered it on a mountain. See what they did there when they named it? Oh, these guys are good. Um, but it turns out by this point in Jesus' life, and this is pretty early in his ministry, he's already started drawing large crowds of people. And if you read the Gospels broadly, you know that Jesus attracted to him. He, he found himself connecting with, eating in the homes of, calling disciples as, creating friendships with people from every imaginable walk of life. Jesus had disciples. Jesus fellowshiped with the wealthiest and the poorest, the most sort of upstanding, righteous, morally good people, the most sort of distasteful, bad, amoral people. Jesus wanted to connect with everyone. We get the context of the Sermon on the Mount by going just a verse before it starts, the very last verse of Matthew chapter 4 and the first two verses of Matthew chapter 5, describe the scene of what this might have looked like when Jesus preached. Here's what it says. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. They don't make it exactly clear whether or not the large crowds all came and got included in that word disciples, or if the disciples were some small subset, presumably not all of it, but it's clear that Jesus is preaching to a big, diverse group of people. Those names in there, Galilee, Decapolis, etc., it basically means people came from everywhere. People were coming from everywhere that you could walk and make it to where Jesus was. They were all coming. Here's my observation uh, uh, for our lives. I think sometimes when we think about our lives of faith, when we think about what God might have for us, what God might desire for us to do at this stage of our life or in the future stage of our life, I think sometimes we tend to come up with reasons why we're not ready 
good enough. We come up with excuses to step us out of seeking first God's kingdom. Here's the message I see from the Sermon on the Mount. There is nobody. There's nowhere you're from. There's nowhere you've been. There's nothing you've done. There's there's nothing about you that excludes you from God's desire for you to seek first his kingdom. We come up with all sorts of reasons that maybe God's not talking to me. That person over there, yeah, 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 I get it. They obviously, they have things together. They have this, they have that. They have their circumstances. But me, what could I possibly have to do with God's great work? We have all sorts of excuses that, that cause us to opt out of seeking first God's kingdom. And let me tell you about our excuses. They're all bad. <laughs> because Jesus is inviting everyone to seek first his kingdom, which means, again, no matter what stage of life you're in, no matter whether things are going good, bad, easy, hard, this is a word for you. And then we get to kind of the, the main theme of this part of Jesus' sermon. And here's his main, main theme. Do not worry. <laughs> I mean, I hear you, Jesus, and I like the idea And if you can get me like an IV that I can just kind of put do not worry into my veins, if there's like a soundtrack on my Spotify playlist that if I listen to it on repeat, I'll stop worrying, sign me up because I would love to not worry. I've tried a few things. Here's one of the things I've tried. Okay. Stop worrying. Just stop it, Carl. Stop. Don't just do not worry. Do not worry. And you know what happens when I do that? Nothing happens. It's just not helpful. It doesn't do anything good. I, uh, I sent out a survey to a bunch of people in the church. Uh, I, I said, hey, I'm, I'm starting this new sermon series, Finishing Well. Uh, I sent it out to younger people. I sent it out to older people. Uh, I sent it out to middler people. One of the themes that came up in, in the numerous different responses I got and it was actually the theme that led me to, to choose this teaching of, of Jesus as the passage for today, is that pretty much everybody, no matter their stage in life, when I ask what does it mean to finish well, in some way, shape, or form, the topic of our worries comes up. And so here's my observation. Um, at each different stage of life, there are different worries, right? In our youth, the, the worry about our, our friendships and our relationships, our, our location in the social ladder, um, our worries in our youth about relationships look very different than our worries about relationships in the last stage of life. Our worries about money in the last stage of life are very different than our worries about money in our middle or youth stage of life. The worries look very different. But here's the thing. There are worries at every stage of life. And this teaching of Jesus, do not worry, is uniquely present and relevant no matter what context we're living in. And if it doesn't work, to just say, okay, Jesus said, do not worry. So I'm going to do not worry, do not worry. I'm gonna... If that doesn't work, what does work? Well, what works is the command Christ gives. He says, do not worry about this, do not worry about that. Well, okay, how do, how do I do that, Jesus? How do, I, how do I push that aside? Here's how you do it. You do it by seeking first the kingdom. I did a word study on the word first. I went deep into the Greek. You know what it means? First. 
It means first. And if you're first, you know what that means? You're before all the other things. I did another actual word study, though, on seek. Seek, to search, to investigate, to pursue. In the noun form, it means careful deliberation or intentional discernment. To seek after something is not a haphazard or casual or accidental activity. If we're going to seek after something, we're calling in the search party. We're taking our time, and we're taking our money, and we're taking our passions, and we're taking our gifts, and we are pointing them in one direction towards something. Seeking is a committed activity. If you're like me, and you know what it is to worry, and if finishing well has something to do with Jesus' words of learning to not worry, then here's the question you have to ask yourself. Am I seeking the kingdom? Or am I just going through the motions hoping the kingdom might trip me and I'll fall into it someday? And if, like happens to all of us at some times, you're like, you know what, Carl, I get that. And I actually know what it's like to seek the kingdom and I've been there and I've done there, but maybe, you know, maybe I fell into some other habit. Maybe I forgot about it. Maybe I got lazy. Maybe I got tired. I don't know. Life can do all sorts of things to cause us to stop seeking. So we might ask ourselves, okay, I'm ready. I'm ready. I want to finish well, and so I want to start today, and so I want to seek first the kingdom, but how? How do I do it? And it turns out that Jesus spent quite a bit of time talking about this over and over, in different times, in different places, to different people in his ministry. And while I could point to a number of themes from the teaching of Jesus, uh, and really from the teaching of God's word, there's one that, that rose to my mind uh, for this morning. I thought about when Jesus said, um, the sheep know the sound of the shepherd's voice. Um, or when Jesus said, remain, abide, stay close to me. Or when uh, in the story of Samuel and Eli from the Old Testament, Samuel was woken in the middle of the night and Eli said, oh, that was the voice of God you heard. Or when the prophet Elijah climbed a mountain and there was a thunderstorm and a firestorm and an earthquake, but then a still small whisper was the voice of God. Throughout scripture, we hear stories about women and men who overcome the worries of life, who seek first the kingdom by listening for God's voice. We seek God's kingdom by listening to God's voice. Now, here's the thing about listening for voices. Um, I don't know about you, but I have some voices and they talk to me. I don't know if I should admit this in a crowd. Let's just keep this between you and me right now. People on the live stream could keep it between you and me right now. And the voices that talk to me, they tend to say all sorts of variations on the theme of, Carl, worry more. Carl, you forgot about that. 
Carl, you're not good enough for this. You're not smart enough for this. You're not this enough or that enough or this enough. The voices that I am really comfortable listening to, whether they're in my head or in toxic relationships in my life or in the horror that we see in news or media or even sometimes in entertainment in the world around us, the voices around us are not encouraging us to stop worrying. The voices around us are competing and trying to drown out. And actually, to be honest, they're pretty good at drowning out. The one voice that just might give us what we all so desperately want in the first place, the voice of God. Somebody gave me uh, an old book about finishing well written by Chuck Swindoll. And in it, uh, he tells this story. Um, There's a mom who takes her son to um, a piano concert. Beautiful, you know, gorgeous, ornate, huge concert hall. Uh, Everybody's in, you know, black ties and fancy dresses, and it's a wonderful occasion. And the mom is there both because she hopes to experience some some great piano music, but also she brought her eight-year-old son because she wants her son to learn the piano. And she's hoping that if he experiences this great pianist, that maybe his motivation to practice will increase. Some of us in the room have tried tactics like this. Uh, I keep forgetting, David told me in the first service, the pianist Paderewski was the name of the pianist. I don't know how to spell Paderewski, but I'm sure Google will help you. So the mom and the son are there, and uh, you know it's a few minutes before the concert, and the mom starts chatting with the people around her. And the son, not surprisingly, loses interest in what the mom is talking about. But something catches his eye. Up on the stage is a huge, shiny, black piano. And it's just sitting there. Mom's talking. So he walks up onto the stage. And he sits down at the piano bench. And he starts to play chopsticks. Now, the crowd hears this and looks up and sees this eight-year-old boy. And as the story goes, the crowd is not too pleased. They think this boy should not be on the stage, and so they start yelling at him. Get off the stage! Get away from the piano! Uh, The concertmaster is backstage, and he hears this commotion, and he looks out, and immediately he sees what's going on. You know, he, he can put two and two together. So he runs out onto the stage, up to the boy, and he comes behind the boy, and puts his arms around him on either side of the piano. And he starts playing with him, adding melody, harmony, creating a duet. And the whole time, he's whispering in the boy's ear, keep playing, don't stop, you're doing great. Don't listen to them, keep playing. I know that I need reminders all the time. When I hear the voices that jeer at me to not listen 
to those voices and instead listen to the one voice of the God who made me, who knows me, whose strength and gifts and power lives in me and who is calling me to do something great no matter what the world around me is telling me. If we're going to finish well by listening to God's voice in life's final stages, we have to start by learning to hear and respond to God's voice today. And especially for the people who still have a bit of a runway until that third third comes. Here's what we know. If we can start today, if we can start learning and practicing this day and every day, God, help me hear your voice. Help me listen and help me hear and then help me respond. If that can become something we do, then when the new challenges and the new worries of the third third of of life do arrive, knowing how to hear and follow God is not one of them. We said uh, when we were designing this sermon series, you know, what we should probably do, if we're going to title this Finishing Well, what we should probably do up front is we should define what does well mean, right? Because there's all sorts of possible definitions. Does finishing well have to do with the size of my nest egg? Does finishing well have to do with the behavior or success of my children? Does finishing well have to do with honor or recognition or productivity? Does finishing well have to do with something inside of me or something in the world around me? What do we mean by finishing well? Again, all of those things have value and also cause worry. Here's the definition um, that I saw repeated in many different books, um, including one by Lori Lutz, a member of our church, who, if you're on the prayer chain, you know, is in the hospital. Please keep praying for uh, Lori. Um, What does it mean to finish well? To finish well means to resist the worries of life by listening to the voice of God. The worries are different in each season, but there are worries, and they can cause you to trip and fall and stumble or crush you under their, under their weight no matter what. And we all need to practice every day to seek first God's kingdom by listening first to his voice, which can and will drown out and overcome all those other voices. Now, as always, um, if you come and if you try to listen to God's voice by coming and sitting in this room for an hour a week, maybe even going to a class and then sitting in here, um, that's, a, that's a great thing. I think what we're doing is a great thing. But hearing God's voice is not a one day a week, one hour a week kind of activity. It's a daily practice. So I ask us every Sunday, what is your move going to be? Uh, And I I created a little exercise that I, I would really encourage you to consider doing. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom. And when he said, seek first the kingdom, it was in the context of discussing the fact of our crushing burdens of worry that weigh us down every day. So would you consider doing this sometime this week or maybe many times in the weeks to come? First, and I'm sorry, but I think it's, um, it's an important place to start. First, uh, first, first. Okay, there we go. 
Jesus said, do not worry about food or drink or clothes. I'll be honest, I, that's not a, a major worry of mine. God's blessed me in that area. It was for many of the people listening at the time. It's not for me. So what are my worries? Ask yourself that question and write them down. There is a sacredness that comes when we put pen to paper and get things out of our head and out of our heart and in front of our eyes and we can look at them and go, oh, that's right. (laughs) I've known you for a while. What are your worries? Name them. Write them down. Admit them. And then maybe even literally with those worries in your hand, listen for God's voice. Say, God, these are the voices I'm already listening to. What are you saying? And let me tell you something. There's a lot of ways you can listen to God's voice. Read scripture. Read through Jesus' sermon on the mount. Read through it a few times and just say, God, what are you saying to me? What are you saying to me? And listen to your voice. You can listen for God's voice in prayer. Maybe you read that list of worries and then you just sit in silence and say, God, I'm not sure what I'm expecting to hear, but but Scripture says you speak, so I'm going to listen for your voice. Turns out sometimes God's voice sounds a lot like the voice of a trusted and wise friend. Maybe you need to listen for God's voice by bringing that list of worries to somebody you know and trust. Maybe somebody with a few more years of experience down the road from you and saying, hey, can I just be honest? Here's what's on my heart. And maybe in conversation, you find that God will speak to you. Maybe you listen to the voice of God through the voice of his followers from generations past. Maybe you read a book of John Perkins or a book of C.S. Lewis or any one of the many great authors who have talked about this very thing, but write down your worries, name it, and then create space where you listen. And once you've done that, find someone who you can tell, hey, spouse, partner, fiance, friend, mentor, my pastor told me to do this weird thing, and I I did it, and I want to tell you about it. I think I heard God's voice. I don't know if it was God's voice. It might have been. It might not have been. But I I tried and I listened. And this is what I feel in my heart. And this is what I hear in my head. This is what I read on the pages of scripture. I think I heard God's voice. And I want to tell you about it. If we are people who start today and make it a habit every day to practice listening for, hearing, and responding to God's voice, then I believe, no matter how crazy this life gets, no matter how many curbs we might crash and bounce off of in our life, we can be people who know what it means to finish well. Would you pray with me? God, you said to us, do not worry. And so we confess, God, um, we are people who carry great worries. For some of us, the worries are new and unfamiliar. For some of us, the worries are old and far too familiar. They change in different seasons of life. But God, we confess that these voices we listen to far too often 
weigh us down and burden us in heavy ways. Help us, God. Help us to seek your kingdom by listening for your voice. We pray this as always in your name. Amen.